We are in 2 Kings this evening. Applying grace is the theme that emerges from the page. There are many of them. What makes Christian grace different from every other type of grace that exists? It's our friendship with Jesus Christ. That's what makes the whole thing different. The motive, the love, the passion. In fact, when praying, I don't feel comfortable, as a rule, praying, Oh God, because it's not personal enough, and I have a personal relationship. And that relationship is keenly expressed by the name Jesus. I pray to the Lord Jesus. I pray to Christ. I could certainly pray to God. I'm not at all saying that's not appropriate. But I am saying that we can go a little further, a lot further. For the Jew, it wasn't much different. They had not the name Jesus, but they did have Yahweh. It was to mark a personal relationship with the Creator. Well, many of the Jews did not take advantage of that. In fact, this King Jehoram, who is likely the king in this chapter, from chapter 3, deep into 2 Kings, the ministry of Elijah, uh, you know, he was one of them, like Jeroboam, wasn't satisfied with the word of God. He wanted to mingle in to worship the golden calves. That is defiant worship, and it is unacceptable to God. It is idolatry. It's not a little thing. It is a great big thing. And we're going to see the consequences of this when we get to uh, the last section of Second Kings chapter 6. Knowing the grace of Christ and my friendship with him, what would I give to make a difference in lives around me if I knew that I would face hardship in bringing grace and bringing light into other relationships? What would I give if I knew that it would please the Lord? Well, each Christian has to answer that themselves. And uh, I don't know that it can really be answered until you're really faced with the situation that is in front of you. Is this worth it? Is this pleasing the Lord? Well, this prophet Elisha, he is loaded with grace. And let's uh, look at verse 1 now. Then the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See, see now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Well, the school of the prophets had outgrown its present location. Their ministry was fruitful. This was a ministry highly influenced, maybe even having as an overseer Elijah. And for sure, Elisha now is overseeing this ministry, this assembly of those loyal to Yahweh. Those two prophets are responsible for this growth. Now, this is just one school. They were, all, they were different places, one in Jericho, another in Bethel. They were scattered around. Uh, this particular school is saying, we, we don't, we, we're expanding, we, we're, we're growing. We've outgrown our, our present space. Ministry is continuing without Gehazi, if this is in chronological order, which is not always easy to establish. But here, Gehazi, you know, he is uh, defrocked, knocked out of ministry because of deception and greed. Well, not deception and coveted, this for sure. And, and so the ministry continued, the prophet continued to work like nothing happened. And that's a warning to all of us that Christ doesn't need us, but he would like us. He would like to have us. And so here is this remnant loyal to Yahweh, opposed to Jezebel's gods, opposed to calf worship, in the face of their own culture. In other words, their neighbors could be worshiping idols. They weren't giving in. They were not backing down. They stood their ground. This is not what we believe. This is what we believe, and you should believe it too. In verse 2, it says, now the servant is still speaking to Elisha. One of the, uh, the, well, the servants, plural. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, go. So again, we, he is overseeing it. They're, they're asking him permission to do this. 
Now, he is itinerant in that he travels around teaching, and that's why we see him going from Samaria to Mount Carmel to Gilgal to Shunem. I mean, he's out of, uh, between he and Elijah, Elijah did go to the desert, Elijah, but Elisha seems to have been very centered on uh, these various locations. In this chapter, we'll see him in Jericho and in Dotham. Um, after, incidentally, Elisha goes to heaven, we don't read of the sons of the prophets. I, I, no pun intended, but I don't know that we can read too much into that. But, uh, of course, he is a, a leading figure, and that is why we, we get information about them. And so the expansion of their assembly, uh, in this expansion, each of them play a role. The sons of the prophets are saying we're outgrowing the space. We're all going out with permission to cut down timber and to expand the building. This church building had many men and women very much involved. And the fruits of their labor is still here. Everything from the drapes to the painting on the walls to the, 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 the division of the walls, and it's ongoing. The men's maintenance ministry just continues to, to do so many things. If you come to the church, you wonder why things aren't broken. Well, you can, you can thank the Lord for those, those men. Anyway, uh, verse 3, Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I'll go. I will go. It only took an invite. One of them stood up and said, we want you to go with us. This is dangerous work, incidentally. The lumberjack work. There's nothing <laughs> easy about this. It's hard work, and it's dangerous work. And once you drop the tree, that's not the end of the work, of course. You've got a you know, bucket, take off the branches, and bring it in, and just so much work they had to do. And so, yeah, they want, they want uh, the, the, their pastor with them for this danger, dangerous task. And he doesn't fuss. He goes with them. Verse 4, so he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Well, pastors with axes or chainsaws, it's a good thing, as long as they're not chasing anybody with them. Uh, but we do take, we do, we Christians are to take axes or chainsaws to misconceptions about Christ. Sometimes it may not merit, merit such an aggressive tool, but it is a lot of fun when it does. But anyway, back to this, Matthew chapter 3. This is John the Baptist, who is, is linked to Elijah uh, in his fire for his passion for God. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that, that uh, Elijah and John the Baptist, there is that connection, but... Elisha is largely connected to Christ as far as the character goes because he's so gracious. And that's going to come out in this story. Not only amongst friends here. This is an easy one. He's amongst his brethren. What happens when he's faced with the enemy? Well, while we're talking about axes, let's see what Scripture says. Because this is very much applicable to our work for the Lord. If an axe is dull, Ecclesiastes 10.10... 10, and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. Well, we have a proverb or proverbial saying, work smarter, not harder. And here's an example of preparation. So much so important is preparation. Uh, you know, pastors, study time is preparation, but there has to be heart preparation also. There has to be some connection between what he's reading and who the Lord is. You just can't study, okay, I got all the facts right, and I'll just go point out the facts. There has to be this communion with the Lord. And if it's for the pastor, it's for the people. No different for you either. Uh, to keep the axe sharp. Abraham Lincoln has an interesting quote about this. He says, at least he is said to have said, um, I wasn't there that day. So anyway, <laughs> give me six hours to chop down a tree... And I will spend the first four sharpening an axe. It makes perfect sense. Preparation is, it is vital. 
So I, I'd like to think that um, we all know how important it is to be ready. How else? How can the Lord assign us to anything if we're not ready? And you know, like I know, if you get a chance to preach the gospel and you're not ready, you bear the shame of that. Like, I knew I should have looked that up. I felt it the other day or something along those lines. Verse 5. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Well, Elijah could have said, That's a personal problem. Or he could have said, Well, I'm glad it wasn't my axe head. Of course, all of that would have been wrong. But here he is, laboring in ministry, doing his share of the work, and here's this loss, this huge setback. And for them, it wasn't just, well, just go down to the hardware store and buy another axe head. It was far more complicated than that. Evidently, this tree, clearly, planted by the water, mindful of Psalm 1, you know, the tree planted by the waters, uh, prolific, strong, made of the perfect specimen. Too bad he didn't stay in bed that day. He would have avoided this problem. Well, uh, you have to be a participant if you're going to achieve. You've, you've got to be ready, the sharpening of the axe, and you've got to participate, and you've got to apply. And he's doing these things, and then this happens. And again, it is a big deal. And he cried out and said, Alas, Master, for it is barred. You can hear the anguish in his voice. Man, this wasn't even mine. I can't afford to pay it back. And the law requires that I pay, pay it back. I don't think he was thinking, well, can you do something for me? I think to him it was like, this is it's done. It's like, you know, you drop a, a glass and it breaks, it's done. Well, uh, that, that what does what? It leaves this man in debt. Now we're starting to move into spiritual applications from the story, which is why it's preserved. The man that loaned this axe head and the axe handle with it, likely, to this servant might have said something like, okay, I'll loan it to you, but don't. Please take care of it. Don't lose it. I need it. And then he he loses it. Through no fault of his own. He's serving God through no fault of his own. A mishap. And he is very mindful of that. 2 Corinthians 6. We closed last week's session with this. Elijah trying to uh, successfully distancing himself from Gehazi's deception. We, Paul wrote, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Well, unlike... Uh, the, remember the servant that went out and just found some <laughs> mushrooms or gourds or something and said, I'm going to put these in the pot and we'll eat them. Didn't know what they were. Human error. That's not the case here. This is not human error. This is equipment failure. So, as he loses the axe, he's got to say to himself, great. Right in the water. Why couldn't have just gone a few feet to the left and been in the, you know, the, the leaves or something? Well, on the other side, you can say to him, well, cheer up. Thank God nobody was injured because the law would require more from you. You'd be running to a city of refuge if you'd killed somebody with that flying axe head. The law demands payment for the axe. And if you had hurt someone, it would have demanded payment for that too. And had Elisha not been there, the axe would have been lost. The servant would have been in his state of, of debt. But when the man asked him, Elisha, whoever the man was, can you come with us? And he said, yes. I would like to think, from personal experience, that he felt led to go with them. He felt this, yeah, I need to be there. And and now, here he is. As I mentioned, the axe would have been lost. Had Jesus not paid for our sins, then we would be lost. Well, that's kind of a lesson that's there on the surface. It's a good lesson because it's on the surface does not devalue the lesson. When I think about the lost axe head, I think about my lost soul. When I think about Elijah being there for the servant, I think about Christ being there for me. But there's so much more just in this paragraph. Verse 6, So the man of God said, Where did it fall? 
And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Believers hope to ask unbelievers, where did things go wrong for us? How did you become a sinner like me? This is an important question. In fact, when Adam sinned in the very beginning, we read in Genesis 3, verse 9, And Yahweh called to Adam and said, Where are you? Well, Adam could have said, Here I am, lost in my sin. Of course, it didn't go that way. But the same question exists for every human being. God says to them, Where are you? And we say, We're at the cross with Christ. But most don't. In fact, water baptism is the answer to that question. Water baptism is to say, here I am. I'm with the righteous now, those that are saved by the blood of the Lamb. It says here, and he showed him the place. Well, to receive God's mercy, we have to point to the place where the loss took place, where the disaster, the catastrophe happened. So he cut off a stick. Well, Elijah was moved by the Spirit to do this because Moses, his teacher, of course, time removed, looking through the Scriptures, uh, he would have known the story about Moses. And uh, practically speaking, uh, placing a, a branch upon the water put the prophet in agreement with Moses. By this act, he's, he's saying, Moses did this, I'm doing this. Exodus chapter 15, verse 25. This is the Jews. They're out of Egypt now. They're out of water also. And they're out of grace. Because what do they do? They start bad-mouthing Moses right away. Which is understandable. Like, what kind of leader are you? You know, you bring us out here. We know we need water. So he cried out to the Lord, Exodus 15, 25. And Yahweh showed him a tree. Because the tree is the solution as we Christians metaphorically look at the story, we connect it to the cross. It's a no-brainer for us. But it, we wouldn't have, it wouldn't be a no-brainer if we didn't have the rich teaching of the Scripture to get us there. We would never have figured this out on our own. It says in Exodus 15, When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them. Well, here is the prophet Elijah throwing, taking the branch and putting it into the water. Prophetically speaking, it speaks of Christ, and I think we know it. John chapter 4, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Well, this axe is this, this lost axe head is going to be raised up. So the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, he applied these Old Testament stories he taught us how to use the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus speaking. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He goes on to say in another place, as Moses was, you know, lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man. So we're justified in looking at these events in the Scripture and making applications to our lives lives around us, our personal problems. They're very real. They affect our moods, and moods can get out of control and cause a lot of problems, or they can be, uh, you, you, there's such a thing as a good mood too. And hopefully faith gets us there, and holds us there. God knew every bit of the symbolism, and so do we. And so, to prove, or to make that point, to expand upon it, when you see a rainbow, you're seeing... A statement from God. God says, when, I see the, when you see the rainbow, I see the rainbow. When I see the rainbow, I remember my promise to you. When you see the rainbow, we're on the same page, God is saying. I'm speaking to you, God says from the rainbow. We say to the unbeliever, you missed it. You missed out. You better get there or else it'll be too late and you should have been there. So Romans chapter 4, speaking about the faithfulness of Abraham, Paul says, now it was written, now it was not written for his sake alone. This is not just for Moses. 
that it was imputed to him, but also for us. We share in these lessons. That's what he's saying. And it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. It's all connected. It all makes sense. I'm not going to be finished with that. I'm going to come back to that. Because the devil, so long as there's breath in us, he will not tire of challenging our belief in God's word. And he will do it by things flying off the handle and sinking out of sight. Are you still going to believe in God, even if he doesn't raise the axe head out or not? My faith is not based upon what God can do at the moment or not. It's who he is. That's what my faith is based on. He doesn't have to do any miracle for me to believe who he is. That's what Jesus was telling Thomas. Blessed are those who don't see it and believe it. It says here, and he threw it in there. Metaphor and applications abound in this first paragraph. Well, the first meaning is that the prophet used wood to raise iron. That's the first meaning. He used wood to perform a miracle. It could have been just these two men knowing there. It doesn't mean there was other witnesses. There didn't have to be. But what is certain is there's a miracle taking place. And a miracle can only be explained a little bit, but enough. That little bit is enough. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. That's a miracle. Man today is like the axe head. He slipped off the handle. He has fallen. He is depraved. He is lost in the river of guilt. And he is sinking into the mud. That stick, of course, speaks of the cross of Christ. And man today can rise from the waters of death and judgment by way of the cross of Christ. Of course, Elisha didn't. He wasn't factoring his mind more on Moses or just being led by the Spirit, one or the other, or both. We come and we see this with a fuller understanding of the finished work of Christ and his plan for salvation. We have no excuse. Can't miss the point. Regardless of what problems won't go away in your life, the point stands. And it stands in the face of the devil. And faith defies Satan. And faithlessness, the kind that... uh, Uh, worships idols, for an example, it defies God. Well, you pick which one. Which side are you going to be on? So, man can rise from the waters. He can be placed back on the handle. He can be put to use again. He can be put back on the handle he flew from. To God's purpose. So that God can use him. He can be used by God for the work of the kingdom of heaven. What an honor. It doesn't feel like that, though, and God doesn't seem to be answering my prayers. But it's there, and I know it, and you do too. Lost souls are still at the bottom of the Jordan River, metaphorically speaking. They're still underwater. They're still in over their heads. In need of Christ, who lifts up. Whatever is lost by way of the cross. And so John chapter 12 verse 32. Jesus said, and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And there he is again applying a lesson from the Old Testament. Christ didn't have to take a sermon. He could just make one statement on a verse and it lasts forever. What use is a cutting tool at the bottom of the river, lost in the mud. What use is it to God? None. It is not until Christ lifts up that life really begins, even even if the hardship continues. And I am lost without the work of Christ and the cross over me. This is Christ in the Old Testament. And there are other appearances. There are Christophanies of Christ. There are Theophanies of God. And there are illustrations of Christ that are stark. And and how many people outside of this room right now have no knowledge of him? How are they ever going to find out these stories? May we pray that God give us a chance not only to tell the stories, but to recall them and the lessons we gain. In verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, Therefore, he said, telling the story, Elisha's speaking, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. 
God wants to use our hands. The prophet didn't, he said, if I'd done my, I've already done a lot. I went and got that branch. He does, that's certainly not part of the story. But God wants to use our hands. God wants us to participate. But he will not force himself upon anyone. We have some responsibility in receiving redemption and sanctification. We have a responsibility too. Otherwise, we just all go to heaven. We just believe that who needs Christ? We just, you know, God does it all. So the metaphor and the applications from this little section. First question is, has God found you flying off the handle in some rage, in anger? Our English word for danger has the word anger in it. All you got to do is take the D out the way. You put the D back in and you have danger and anger mixed in together. The flying off the handle. Have I done it? Yes. Christ forgives me. I love this verse from James because it applies to me. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Flying off the handle is not what God wants. It's not what he's after. But we do it. The loss of the axe head, on the other hand, may ask this question, have you lost your cutting edge? So familiar with Christianity, you're no longer excited. So beat down from prayers not being answered over the decades, you no longer really believe in prayer. You're not excited to tell the truth. You're not excited to do your devotion times. You doubt more than you believe. You've lost your cutting edge. I don't want to be that guy, and I have to fight to keep it. Not always. Sometimes it's right there. Other times, it's not. But I know, I know how to get it to where it needs to be. 1 Timothy 5.15, For some have already turned aside after Satan. They've turned away. That's apostasy. They were once headed in the right direction, and then they turned. No one forced them. They just jumped that way. Another lesson is, it was borrowed. Well, so are my talents and my gifts. Whatever I have. If I'm a business owner, that business belongs to Christ. If I am a family uh, a member, uh, that family belongs to Christ. Whatever I have comes from God. And God lays this out in various Old Testament and New Testament verses, but we'll only take one because it comes from John the Baptist. It's just appropriate to put him here. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Of course, Paul elaborates on that. What do you have that you have not received? Is there anything? The question Where did it fall? That merits investigation. It's worth looking into. The unbeliever doesn't believe it is worth it. I'm all right. I'm a good person. You know, compared to the guys on death row, I'm actually a saint. That's how they would talk. We would have to mock such a stupid statement. You're not being judged by the guy on death row. You're being judged by Christ Jesus, who did not deserve death row. In fact, He went in the place of another, Barabbas, who was on death row, who should have been executed. Wood floating, iron. Wood causing iron to float. It's not magic, it's the power of God. The cross of Christ is miraculous. It's not fictitious, it's miraculous. And you either believe in the... In, in, you know, a miracle means that... God is at work in a way that no one else can work. Genesis 1-1 is a miracle. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No one else can do it. The angels can't do it. Satan, the only thing he can create is trouble. Where he says here, pick it up for yourself. I have a role to play. To go out, to chop wood, to participate, to function... And to stick my hand out and take hold of that which Christ puts before me to grab. Jesus can recover. This is, this is another part of the lesson. Jesus can recover what was lost in the work of ministry. You know, we, we often quote Jonah. The God saying, you know, I, I will, uh, not Jonah, Joel. Restore what the locusts have eaten. Well, 
Here he is restoring what has flown off the handle. Equipment failure. He, he gives it back in the life of his servants. He's not doing this to Jehoram. This is to one of the servants of the Lord. This miracle, it's, it's lost. The meaning is lost unless you have a relationship with God. In this miracle, we learn that we are lost without God. In the next miracle, we'll learn that we're blinded without God. And so we now come to the next section, verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be, with, will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king, verse 9, of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So the king of Syria wants to catch or kill, or catch and kill, the king of Israel. That's his target. Remember that as the story unfolds. It's critical to what's going on. Syria, of course, the, the north uh, eastern border uh, neighbor of Israel. And uh, we don't have enough information, historical information in the narrative to be certain that it is King Jehoram. But we have no reason to doubt that it's any other king because he's the last one mentioned in uh, way back in chapter 3, when these three kings went out to the, to, uh, the desert. So it is likely him, and, and the responses are typical. Jehoram was impetuous. You know, he just did emotional things. Let's go, let's go to the desert and make war and, and do this. And he didn't think it out, and then he's going to show up some other places. So I'm going to approach it that way. I think that is the right way. Um, so here, also is the gift of knowledge that Elisha has been given. The king of Syria is saying, okay, let's set up ambushes. And Elijah knows where they are. And it's just given to him. God is giving him this knowledge. And he tells it to the king. And the king sends out and says, verify this. And they verify it. And he keeps doing it. He does it so much that the Syrian king thinks he's got a mole in the palace. Somebody's he's got a, you know, a spy. This Elijah, he was surprised when God did not tell him what was going on. Remember when the widow came, or not the widow, the mother came, her child had, had, had died, and she'd come running to him, and he's like, God has hidden it from me. He's not told me what's going on, and this isn't right. <laughs> so, of course, uh, God told him that Gehazi was turn, uh, went to Naaman, and Naaman turned back. He tells him the troop locations. He tells... Uh, he will get to where he tells the Syrian that you're going to kill your master. He just, God tells this man things. Verse 11, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Verse 12, And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Well, first off, that means that there's a spy or there's an unfaithful servant in the palace of the Jews. That's how this Syrian was going to know this. He's saying the information is going back and forth. And he said, you know, Elijah keeps telling the king, maybe it's not a spy, maybe it's just somebody with loose lips, you know, loose lips, sink ships. I think that came out of World War II. Might have been in World War I, too. Anyway, World War I also. Couldn't be World War I, too, because World War II, okay, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> so is so accurate is his knowledge, so miraculous, that the Syrians, you would think the king would say, wait a minute, God is telling this, I, I want to change to that God. I want that God to be my God. No, that's not what happens. So God is using the prophet to intercept the evil intentions against Israel for the sake of of the remnant, mainly, with the hope, of course, always the hope that the people are going to, the, the ones that are engaged in idolatry, are going to snap out of it. 
We have no reason to doubt that some did not. Some likely did, but the majority did not. And that's going to show up at the end, verse 13. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. So the king wants to abduct the prophet. He is not the target. He is the hindrance to the target. He's the obstacle. And uh, Dothan, this is where Joseph found his brothers. Naive Joseph. Hey, I had a dream. I'm going to be better than all of you. And God's going to do this to me. You're going to bow down to me. But Joseph, shut up. Anyway, he uh, couldn't keep a secret. However, back to this. Uh, it is, is where they put him in the pit and sold him into slavery. Well, that factors into the story because that means this is a, a trade route. This is a busy area. And that's where the prophet is. He's probably, probably ministering to one of the schools of, of the sons of the prophets. And the Syrian king wanting to kidnap, <laughs> abduct him. Uh, but again, why not convert? The unbeliever, who is not our enemy, is our opportunity. Well, they can become an enemy for sure. Anybody can become an enemy. But the unbeliever, they are armed only with human reason. And therefore, they are unarmed against the deceptions of Satan. You can't beat Satan with human reason. It is impossible. You, it is spiritual. The carnal man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And this is what is happening with this king. Uh, he just human reason. Well, we have a man that is being told by God the, the, the future, predicting where we're going to be, giving him knowledge. Uh, let's, let's abduct him instead of, again, converting. Verse 14, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Later, he's going to send troops again, but it will not be a great army. It will be the whole army, and that distinction is important, again, to the story. This is likely a battalion size, a 1,000 men at, at least. Um, they come with enough force to surround the city and to be ready for resistance. Well, that was wise. No, no commander is going to go out and say, listen, I've got to guard my flanks. I've got to guard my rear. I've got to be ready for anything, and, and that's what they're doing. But again, humans without God are impressed by human strength. Even gorillas aren't impressed with human strength. You watch some of those animal you know, videos and you see what a tiger can do. Uh, it's just, man, it's just not, no. You can spend, a, you can sleep in the gym. You're just never going to get that strong. And from God's standpoint, gorillas and tigers are just created beings. They have no strength to him. Anyway, uh, the early Christians were ridiculed as being weak because their king allowed himself to be crucified. Well, the carnal man, again, does not understand. And we have to uh, clarify it for them if we can. But we can't clarify it for them, even if we're right there in front of them, if God is not working. Uh, so you can have somebody that says, well, tell me about the gospel. And, and you got nothing because God, they, you know, God has figured out this person is not sincere. Maybe later they will be. Anyway, verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elijah said, Rod! No. <laughs> that would have changed everything, right? Would it not? Uh, <laughs> was this the same servant that had the axe head float? Well, we don't know. But this is kind of rude. You wake up in the morning. They come at night, and you wake up in the morning, and you're doomed. You're doomed as doomed can be. Verse 16. So he answered, Elisha speaking, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, of course, Elijah saw the enemy close up and strong, but he also saw God was closer and stronger. Psalm 34, verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps about those who fear him and delivers them. But the servant, justifiably so, is not convinced. I know you're the prophet. You say so. You can make an axe flow. That's pretty good. But these guys are going to kill us. When you're faced with fear like this, when you're faced with a genuine threat, 
man, it's uh, it can be pretty tough. So Elijah, on this day, he's he's ready. Verse seventeen. Then Elijah prayed and said, Yahweh, I pray. You see the covenant name that that fellowship is there. It's not just a generic God. He is God, but he's more to us. Yahweh, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Well, Elisha is probably an older man now, thus the distinction the young man. And the young man could have been in his 30s or younger. Again, Gehazi missed this. He should have been there. He's the missing man. He doesn't recover as we would have liked. John, uh, Thomas, Thomas was the missing man. I'm not, I don't care. I'm not going to believe it unless I put my fingers in his wound. I'm not gonna, he was the missing man, but he recovers. He couldn't stay away. He was so heartbroken. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm just done. But he couldn't stay away. And he comes back in the picture, and Jesus, and, and that's recovery. That is recovering that which is lost to the muddy waters and getting the cutting edge back. Step one in overcoming an army of troubles. What is step one for the believer? Talk to God. That's step one. And it is, it is unconditional. A time to pray for those who just don't get it. And that's what is happening here. The servant just didn't get it. I'm in the profession of talking to servants that just don't get it. Not all of them, of course. Not by any means. But there are many, many times on a Sunday morning, how many people just, you know, don't get it. Because they're not in the Word. They don't come to church regularly, perhaps. Or maybe they have made themselves too busy. And so they're missing points. They can't connect them. They're, they're, they're sort of insensitive to it. I don't mean insensitive in, a, in, a, in an emotional way. or I mean in the sense that they're, they haven't developed the sensitivities to, to sense, okay, I know what that is. And we do that through exposure to God's Word. But God's word will not cure you of your problems. Not by itself. Many of those problems you still have to face. Well, anyway, but you face it with God and his word. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. That's what the word of God does through the people of God who believe in the word of God. It's all connected. No part of it should be separated from the other part. Continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in prayer and fellowship and the communion of the saints. Uh, well, or communion with the Lord. So Elijah's word is going to affect the vision of his servant in this case. Later, he's going to affect the vision of his enemies. He's a busy guy. Uh, I started to entitle this The Busy Prophet, but it sounded just, you know, not appropriate for such a man, a man of such stature. Anyway... Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Well, fire is often associated with the divine presence, with God being present, and it is so here. But there can be no movement against God's people without God knowing it. It's, it's not possible. It, God, it never goes unnoticed. Whatever problems you face or have faced or will face, it, God, is, it's noticed by him. The enemy could not see the chariots of fire. I wonder what would have happened if Elijah had prayed, Lord, let the enemy see the chariots. Well, they probably all would have just been petrified, and that would have ended the story, and we'd be closing in prayer. But there's more to come, and there's a reason why, I think. But coming back to this point, God caring, Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and... Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. And then he goes on to say how you are worth more than a sparrow. Sparrows are not worth much to men, but men are worth a lot to God. They're worth blood, his blood. Remember, Jesus is God the Son. Fire, the emblem of that which purges and that which empowers, fuel. Revelation 19.14 And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. There's coming a time when we will be the army of God. And the armies in heaven. There's a lot of people going to be in heaven. Um, 
and broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. There are many that go in by it. But straight is the way, narrow is the gate, and there are few relative to how many got lost. But still, a lot of people will be saved and in heaven. Uh, that certainly would include other spiritual beings in that Revelation 19 verse, verse 18 now of Second Kings chapter 6. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to Yahweh and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So God listened to his prophet and, and struck them with this blindness here. There's a lot going on. They should first of all be very glad this is not Elijah. He would not have called for blindness. But lightning would have been bad. Anyway, Elisha's demeanor with the enemy is one of grace. Instead of lightning, he calls for delusions. This is not, I don't believe, uh, the blindness, the complete darkness of the sight. I do believe he creates a delusion for them. And I'll open this up a little bit. One, one is the, the, the Hebrew word for blindness here is, is only used here and in uh, Genesis 19 with the Sodomites to surround the house and they're smitten with blindness and they keep groping and it's just like they can never find the door because uh, if, if this were actual blindness, they all would have been panic-stricken, <laughs> at least here. Exodus twenty-three twenty-seven. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. So God, and he points this out in other places in Scripture, God is not the author of confusion for his people not for the enemy. He will author confusion on the enemy. And that is brought up in Scripture. Well, you know, the Second Thessalonians, and because they did not believe in the truth, but had love for the lie, I will give them strong delusion. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Again, had they lost their sight, they would have been preoccupied with that. And these men are going to march 12 miles. And it's a likely 1,000 men, at least 200. So if they were blind, it's just the story falls apart. They are placed under delusion, not catching what is going on. Uh, as I mentioned, this wor rare word for blindness, looking at the root Hebrew words, suggests to be dazzled, <laughs> to, be, to just, you know... Mesmer, sort of mesmerized. Uh, there could have been a hazy sight involved also, but they're, too, they're, they're not alarmed. The men are like, wait a minute, I can't see anything. Uh, that would have come out of, of the story had he smitten them with that form of blindness. And it is. The Bible talks about you know, Satan uh, blinding people. Well, they have their sight still. They're spiritually blind. So let's develop this. Now, if you're one of those that are insisting that they're, 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 you know, he took their sight away, you create more questions than you do satisfy, uh, uh, than you do can, can satisfy them. Verse 19, and it's not faithlessness. Please don't think that it's, you know, but the Bible says they're blind. <laughs> no, you're blind. And if you're not, you're going to be in a minute. Um, so anyway, Elijah said to them, this is not the way, nor is this a city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. Not some area, but Samaria. I try to make that pronounced a little bit more because of our English. But uh, anyway, he says, follow me, which they could not do if they were blind. It would be like, where are you? Uh, Acts chapter 26. Because I, I believe all of this. I mentioned I'd get back to this. <clears throat> I believe every single word. I step into the pulpit every single time with full intention to preach God's word with full belief. And don't worry, I have room for doubt other times. But not when I get up here. Acts 26, that does not mean there's a double split personality or a falter in faith. It means there's fights that go on. But back to this, Acts 26, verse 27, Paul speaking to the king, King Agrippa and the Roman governor, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. I mean, you got to love Paul, man. He's just right up in that guy's face. He said, I know you say you believe in the prophets. I'm calling you out on it. Well, Acts chapter 27, when the ship is sinking, and Paul, <clears throat> he, he decides that, you know, he now is going to tell the men what the plan of escape is. 
He says, therefore, take heart, Acts 27, verse 25, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. And I believe that. I believe as much as what I know about heaven will be just as it was told me. The emerald throne and all that, but they're going to be so much more. As the Queen of Sheba said, the half of which has not been told. We are. i got to hurry up here. Gets, I thought I had more time because, you know, Chris helping me out. <laughs> He's really said, Chris, I want you to, Chris said, I really want you, Pastor, to speak 15 minutes more. So I'm going to, no, he did not. All right. It's not fun talking to a dull crowd. I just want to get that on record. Anyway, uh, ultimately, he is, uh, the prophet, is going to bring them to himself when he removes the veil. But remember I said, the, ob- the, the target is the king. And he says, I'm going to take you to the man you want. He's just an obstacle. Their short-term mission was to abduct the prophet, to apprehend him. The original mission, which is still um, in force, is to conquer the king of Israel. And Elijah is merely, merely that obstacle hindering them from achieving that objective. So when he says, I will take you to the man you seek, there's no lie. He's getting right to the point. You really want the king, and I'm going to take you to him. They, of course, think that he's saying Elijah, uh, that him, but that's on them. That's not his responsibility. He's getting to the, the, the nitty-gritty, we would say. He's uh, getting to the point of the whole thing. Verse 20, so it was when he had come to Samaria, that Elisha said, Yahweh opened the eyes of these men that they may see, and Yahweh opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were, inside Samaria. Too late. So there's this confusion, this, this delude. They're going, they're following along, and they're just not saying to themselves, wait a minute, he's leading us into the enemy's camp. Uh, that has been paused, and now... He has unpaused it. When they were marching, I'm sure the soldiers were saying that were close enough to hear Elijah, why does he keep snickering? (laughs) If it was me, I would have been laughing all the way. Anyway, no, I would not. This is grace. This is the the prophet. Just watch this unfold. Verse 21. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? You You can hear the... The, that impetuous, that, uh, uh, what's the word I want? Um, anyway, he, he is impetuous. He is um, just emotionally, he, his emotions go ahead of his thoughts. Jehoram, the king. And so he says, can I kill him? Can I kill him? He's like, you know, he wants permission on one hand. And he's, he's, he expresses this desire to, to go savage. Uh Evidently, Elisha sent a message ahead, a messenger, to alert the king, to activate the troops, to be ready for this. Otherwise, he just would have come into Samaria and there would have been no problem. But where he calls the prophet my father, well, it's short-lived. Again, he, um, he, he is just in the moment, this king. He is not going to stay there. Later on, he's going to want to kill the prophet. So Jehoram, is, he is just um, excited and thus the repeated question, uh, when things are going his way, my father, when things are not going his way, uh, let's kill him. When they're faced with starvation, we get to verse 32. Shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Admirable that he did ask, verse 22, because he didn't know what to do. But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Mercy is the characteristic of Elisha. He's saying, no, don't kill the guys. You don't kill a prisoner of war. That's just murder. You, you feed them. Give them drinking water. They just marched 12 miles in a state of confusion. And now <clears throat> you can imagine what they were thinking when they realized, uh-oh, we are, uh, we are surrounded. So he set food and water before them that they may eat and drink, and go to their master. More grace. Proverbs 25. 
If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So, for so you will heap coals of fire on his head that, uh, and the Lord will reward you. And the Lord will reward you. You can't always do that. You can't always kill people with kindness. Sometimes you just, they won't allow it. But there are times that it, this is what is required. Not retaliation. It was the end of that. What is it just retaliate, retaliate doesn't work. Romans 12, Paul echoing this. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's, this is illustrative for us. We're seeing it happen here in this story. Now, if these men had drawn, drew, drew their swords, then it would, not, it would have been a, a different story. But they did not. Uh, they, they were just... Uh, their, their fate was in the hands of Israel at this point. Um, you know, it is a fascinating thing that Isaiah wrote more about the coming Christ than any of the Old Testament writers. Joseph perhaps illustrates more, but, but Isaiah wrote more. Elijah behaved more like the coming Christ uh, probably than any of the others in his grace, although Joseph would give him a run for it. Uh, but he's just so gracious, this man. Um, God just has his servant doing what he wants him to do. Verse 23. Then he prayed, um, pardon me, <laughs> then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Now again, presumably this is Jehoram. This, uh, just speaking about his impetuous ways, he tells him, give them bread and water. Well, he makes a feast for them. It's just like, man, he just runs hot. There's no middle with this guy. Your God's led us into the wilderness to kill us. You know, just nothing in between. It says that the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land. Well, that creates a problem for us. Because they will, in the next section, attack Israel with this great army instead of just a, a large army. Well, with all the army instead of a great army. Either this is out of chronological order and it happens after the events in chapter, in verses 24 forward, or the raids did stop. The king of Syria said, okay, this isn't working. This kindness he's killing us with, I'm just going to attack the whole thing. I can't have my troops go in there and get this kindness shown to them. They won't want to attack Israel. So it's all out war now. And I think that's, that's uh, where it is. So it's either out of chronological order, or the, the raids stopped and the, f the, the war escalated. No more little sorties into the land, but full-blown war. And, and that's how it reads. So I'm going to go with the way it reads, verse 24. You say, why do they write this way? I, I think it was hard to find paper <laughs> to rewrite. Rewrite the whole thing? I can't. I don't have any more parchment. Or anyway, verse 24. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So there it is. After this, this is what's taking place. And I think that paragraph belongs next to the preceding paragraph and not earlier at the uh, floating axe episode. So the race, uh, the raids, they ceased, but the invasion begins and it will continue into chapter 7. Um, this... Uh, the larger army now is coming into the land. Samaria is a, is a naturally fortified city. It would require a lot more troops to take, uh, to take them. Verse 25, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab for, of a dove droppings for five shekels of silver. <laughs> Well, the siege creates starvation. That's the whole purpose of the siege, is to spare your men blood, your men's blood, no, no violence for your side. Just starve out the other side. Well, God said this would happen, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. He, he warned Israel, you turn from me, and he, he itemizes, he lays it out. These things will happen. The extreme survival measures taken by the residents of Samaria force them to eat things that they would not eat. The, the 
the donkey's head. The dove droppings were probably used for fuel because after a while you run out of wood. And you can't go outside the, the city to, to harvest anything. Uh, he could have even used it for salt as one commentator. And I, how would he know that? Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, where am I? So they're paying these exorbitant prices for things usually that's discarded because they're in a state of desperation, setting it up for what's coming. Josephus talks about the measurements. Do you really want to hear it? Uh, the shekel and I don't, we don't have time. You can use a good Bible reference and go just crazy trying to get somebody to agree <laughs> what, what the standards of measure uh, are for each incident. Verse 26, then the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. A woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if Yahweh does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, I can't help you. We have no food. I can't do anything. In verse 28, then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. Verse 29, so we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Oh, what a crime. How dare she hide her son? These people are out of their mind with the devil. There's nothing in this. This is really happening. And it's just not. In ancient history, there are other cases like this. Not just the Jews in the Bible. There's other cases. Jeremiah talks about this happening from Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus talks about it happening when Titus comes along and, and besieges Jerusalem in 70 AD after the resurrection. This is not just here. The king never saw this coming. Horror must have rushed over him in an instant, but predicted by God, Deuteronomy 28. We don't have time for me to read the verses that lay it all out. This, is, this means, this action, by these actions, these women eating their children, this means that demon possession has set in. In their desperation, rather than suffer, they cave in. They collapse. Utter collapse. Everything decent is lost in their rejection of Yahweh. This is the accumulation of decades of being fake with their approach to God, with their idolatry. And so now God allows Satan to have his way with the people because he has given them over to their, their cravings. And Paul talks about this, God turning people in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> giving them the delusion, turning them over to their lusts. They were beyond regret. They were beyond revulsion. They were beyond horror at this point. And you can only get like this when Satan is turning the knobs and pulling uh, the, the cords. Darkness had become their light. If they were going to survive, they're going to have to eat somebody. Humans, originally made in the image of God, are never supposed to eat one another. When someone says, we'd like to have you for dinner, clarify it. <laughs> anyway, we have to move on. Lamentation 4.10, there you'll find Jeremiah lamenting over this practice then. Verse 30, now it happened when the king heard the words of the women that he tore his clothes and he passed by on the wall and the people looked and underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Well, he cared for the kingdom. He just didn't care for Yahweh's kingdom. And he has this remorse. The godly sorrow produces repentance, but he doesn't have godly sorrow. He has human sorrow. And that's it, as far as he goes. He's being a leader of men, but he's not being a subject of God. And um, I'm rushing through this a little bit. Uh, but the hidden sackcloth, yeah, men can have great horror at what people do to each other without ever turning to the truth of God. Verse 31, then he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Well, he's not going to get Elijah's head and he's not going to have his head taken off either. So that was just a big, uh, he's just blaming God for his evil. 
and he's just a blowhard at this point. Verse 32, but Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? There's the gift of knowledge again. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. <laughs> so Elijah said, the son of a murderer, Ahab was his father, was Jehoram's father. And if it is Jehoram, and Ahab, of course, murdered Naboth for his vineyard and others. And so Elijah, he doesn't lose sight of who this guy is. He's trying to help the king. He's been working with the king. He has told the king, you've got to wait this one out. Because your idolatry has messed up everything. And that will come in the next verse. The elders, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> well, you know what that cough means. It's coming until pollen season returns. Anyway, uh, maybe you don't know. Well, hit me up after service. I'll tell you all about my allergies. So coming back to this, verse 33. And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him, and then the king said, surely this calamity is from Yahweh. Why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? So he comes and, and Elijah, who has the town elders there, coming to hear from him, as Ezekiel did often. He says, hold the door. Don't let the messenger inside. Hold him at the door. His king is right behind him. And I'll deal with the king. And that's what happens. And so the, the narrative goes right to the king and uh, the king says to Elijah, surely this calamity is from Yahweh. And Elisha says, surprise, duh, you're the only one that doesn't know that? And the king then says, why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? Which presupposes that Elijah told him, you better wait this one out. God will deal with this. And he will in chapter 7. But he's extracting so that everybody can see from beneath the surface the hearts of the king and the people alike. And God is saying, you mess with idolatry, you're opening yourself up to demons. Let's pray. How, Father, um, you read these stories and you're just glad we're living in these times. However, we know that there's still evil and there will be until you return. And may we handle it like your prophets, like the men and the women whom you have appointed to preach the, the light of Christ in the darkness. May it get us all home safely, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.